Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and on the show today, we're talking coffee, the culinary industry as a whole, and COVID-19. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back to the Chef Timoni podcast, or if you're new here, welcome to Chef Timoni. I'm really glad you've joined me. It is a different week, to say the least. We are all wrestling with the challenge that the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, is throwing our way. And for my part, I wrestled with whether to try to turn out a regular episode, which might be something familiar and comforting in the midst of these really unprecedented times. And then I thought, no, it would be more helpful to address this head-on, talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the culinary industry, and where I've netted out is to do a little bit of both. So coming up later in the show, you're going to hear an interview that I recorded a few months ago, actually, with a wonderful duo, Rory and Diana, and they are behind Scavenger Coffee, which is this amazing roaming bicycle-powered coffee business in Vancouver. So that will be coming up after the first interview. The first interview is one I recorded much more recently, just a couple of days ago. I reached out to Robert Belcham, who's a friend of mine. Robert has been on the show before. He appeared as a guest to discuss his experience in the culinary industry. He's a very well-known restaurateur in Vancouver. He is behind Campagnolo. He is behind Monarch Burger. He is one of the partners in Popina on Granville Island. And Robert is also the president of an industry association called the Chef's Table Society of BC. So I reached out to Robert earlier this week, as I say, and he very kindly got right back to me, said he would be happy to be back on the show. And I'm really grateful to him for for accepting my call and for appearing. Uh, You'll hear from Robert in just a moment. What I asked him was to give his take on what he's been experiencing personally in his restaurants and what uh, the challenges he has faced and and how he has dealt with them and then also to comment from his perspective as head of the chef's table society on the impact on the culinary industry as a whole to say the least it's dire and so one of the final questions I asked Robert was what can we as members of the restaurant loving public do to help support restaurants during this really really challenging time and Robert's got some great thoughts there too. All right, so I'm going to keep the intro short this week. I want to get right to the interviews. We'll be following up with the team from Scavenger Coffee, but first, join me for my remote, not face-to-face interview. Here's my talk with Chef Robert Belcher. Well, listen, Robert, thanks very much for making time for me this afternoon for sort of, (laughs) it sounds odd, an an emergency podcast session, but I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to be back on Cheftimony during some really abnormal times. It's my pleasure to be here, Graham. You know, I I just hope that this gets out to some people, maybe gives them some reassurance, maybe, I hope, and then some, some good information. I hope <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start first with um, let's let's keep it local, and then we'll expand out from there. Let's let's start first with your restaurants. Can you tell us what decisions you've made for Campagnolo, for Monarch Burger, Popina? What's what's going on in your immediate world? Yeah, absolutely. So, on um, I guess it was 
We were watching, we were, I was in Toronto last week and I was monitoring it quite closely what was going on and as everybody was, I'm sure. And then it was probably Friday, last Friday, I started seeing some restaurants closing in Montreal and then uh, the government of Ontario, they were really pushing, they're probably the most progressive, it seems like they're the most progressive province, you know, and how, how quickly that they're making these decisions to, to, to make things uh, close up and I was watching it all Saturday morning and seeing just restaurant after restaurant in Montreal and Ontario close, 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 close. And, and I was obviously in close contact with my business partner, Tim, and he was back on the ground and <clears throat> there was a lot of worried people, people coming into the, into the business. And of course, you know, numbers have been down significantly uh, over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, when it becomes, when we start to see the same parallels as other, countries and the fact that we had an opportunity to maybe stem the tide by closing and then also making sure the number one thing is always our staff and making sure that they're healthy is 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 our number is our number one priority and so we decided because of that first and then because of our customers with the last thing we'd want is any you know customers becoming sick at the restaurant or, and then, and then, obviously, you know, it would affect all of the the staff as well. And um, we just felt it was prudent to 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 make that step of of closing, regardless of what else was happening here in BC. You know, we saw the writing on the wall. We saw it happening in Montreal. We saw it happening in other parts of Quebec, Ontario, and we just it seemed like the the, the smart solution to try to help stem the tide. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. I was just gonna say. You know, it's it's. It's very easy for me to make that decision because I'm the chef and restaurant owner. And, you know, it's very, very difficult for other, for people to make that decision. I made it because I've, that's just who I am. And everybody's situation is completely different and it affects so many other businesses. I would never tell somebody what to do with their own business. But, you know, this, my suggestion is if, unless we want to see it the same as what's happening in Europe, like Italy or Spain, or even in the United States now, we need to do our best to get people away from the public, like getting, you know, not having public gatherings of any size. I think that it's better for everybody to stay home. And you can't do that if you're running a restaurant. It's just not possible. If, yeah, we, if, we, just- if we, you know, if we take care of it and we, it, it only lasts a couple of weeks because we've, we've all taken these extreme uh, measures to, to to sort of stem the tide, then we won't be looking at a three four month shutdown. I mean, that's my hope. Um, I don't know if that's what will happen, but that's my hope. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is. It well, to your point, that right now we still have a shot at it, at least. Yes, right. So exactly. let's. Yeah. So let's do it. What What did that look like, Robert? When you When you made the decision, I've seen some posts on Instagram. You know, restaurants cleaning out their walk ins, staff taking perishable food home you know people making to go things just what that must have been a very eerie experience the you know the last last day just shutting up for an indefinite period of time yeah well you know what's interesting is like we had like we'd seen this we had closed for lunches because we saw that you know the business was down and then we decided to close for two days again because business was down and when we made the decision to close on saturday night i wasn't there uh, because i was still in toronto and tim gave everybody the, the news 
my whole staff took it incredibly well. Everybody understood what was going on. They, they see it on the news every day. And I had talked to Tim. I, I flew back a day early to, to, to do exactly that, to clean up the walk-in and to get rid of the perishable food and try to, to freeze as much as we possibly could and stuff like that. We gave away all of our fresh pasta the, the, that Saturday night, all of our fresh bread. If anybody wanted anything, you know, and had a dozen eggs or whatever to get through the week, whatever it was they wanted, they, you know, they were welcome to it. But what really surprised me when I walked into the restaurant on Monday morning was there was my chef there, you know, there was, you know, a couple other, my cooks working diligently away, you know, doing exactly what I came in to do. And I didn't know that they were going to be there. I didn't ask them to come in, but their, their pride and their love of, of Campagnolo brought them in and it really touched me because it was like, you know, they knew what had happened and they knew just as it was devastating on them for many reasons, it was devastating on me too. And they wanted to be there to, 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 to properly, you know, shut up to, to, to close down the restaurant, to be able to make it. So when they came back, they weren't dealing with a bunch of rotten food in the fridge and that we were right. able to, you know, to save a bunch of money by taking care of it today as opposed to throwing it away later. It was really great. Yeah. It was really great. To that is, that is really great. It's great. It's great to hear. I'm sure it was great to observe. And, and from what I know of the, of the culinary industry, that, that doesn't surprise me too much, right? Cause people really do give a damn. Yeah. They exactly. want, the, exactly. want the places to do well. Yeah. That's, that's great. What, what are the impacts that you're seeing Robert on, other uh, other people, other businesses affected by this because it's obviously extremely challenging for you as a restaurant owner, as a business owner. It's challenging for your staff who are now not working. Who else is being? Are you seeing affected? We've got suppliers, we've got farmers. What are you seeing outside the restaurant walls? Well, that's that's exa- you. You hit the nail on the head right there. It's 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 affecting the whole supply chain. We have suppliers that, that, that their main businesses are the restaurants. So, you know, we're talking, you know, from all of our small farmers and food suppliers, they have to switch their supply streams to go to try to get into grocery stores or into farmer's markets to be able to, to sell their stuff. You know, thank God we're not in the middle of the summer where they make the most of their money. So they're, you know, they're selling overwintered items or, you know, greenhouse items. So it's not as, it's not as dire for them right now, but still, then there's you know the wine industry, the liquor industry. There's all the peripheral stuff that has to do with the restaurant industry that's obviously being affected. And then it just ripples out. Like you know we're in our. It's funny because we're in our own little world in the restaurant business. And never in the history of of you know the world that I that I know of has anything like this ever happened before, where everybody is affected so dramatically. Everybody's life has been turned upside down. You know, in 2009, 2010, when we had the economic downturn, you know, it didn't affect like cooks that much unless the restaurant closed because they don't, they didn't, they don't have a ton of money. It affected rich people in 2009, 2010, and it affected entrepreneurs and stuff like that. But the regular Joe just trying to scratch out a living, it didn't affect that much. We were able to throw money at it and the money fixed the problem. With this, Mm -hmm. there is nothing that can fix it other than this, this either a vaccine or, you know, trying to flatten that curve as everybody is saying and trying to, you know, let the, the, let the virus run its course and then, and then hopefully get out on the other side unscathed. Yeah. And then get back to normal as fast as we can. Yeah. What, what's, what's the view from the chef's table society? Because I know you're the president of the, of the society of the industry group association. Um, and, and to preface that question, maybe give us an idea of what restaurants, independent restaurants look at 
when times are good, like what the margins are like on a day-to-day basis, and then what people are facing now? Well, the margins are like, this isn't uncommon knowledge. It's the margins in our business are incredibly slim, you know, two to, you know, depending on the business, two to 8%, two to 5%, depending on, you know, what city you're in, things like that. It's always a very tough business to be in to be, to begin with. And small independents, small independent restaurants don't have the cushion of, you know, a, a big company to help them out in bad times. But we're seeing this is affecting not just the small independents, but big, massive restaurant chains as well. Like, it was very, very nice to see the solidarity of the industry, like with the Joey's and the Earl's and the Cactus Clubs all closing up uh, over the last couple of days because of the same reason. They're, they're trying to protect the community and, and that's what's that's, that's a good thing. But those companies... If you could just imagine, you know, you have a restaurant that's doing, you know, two or 300 people a day, just the amount of inventory they have in their fridge today and that they were going to try to sell over the next couple of days is just absolutely immense. And a lot of that food is going to go to waste, unfortunately. And it's it's a massive cost to these, you know, to these big companies. And it's definitely, I'd be scared if I was, you know, them too. I'm scared now. I'm doesn't matter the size of your restaurant or the business. It's just, it's scary all around. Yeah. What, what can we do? We being the restaurant loving public. And I think chef to listers are definitely going to fit into that crowd. Yes. We I'll speak for myself. I want these restaurants around. I want them to be here in two weeks and two months. What what can we do now? One thing I did, I saw an Instagram post from our friends at Harvest uh, Community Foods. They're doing an extra CSA, so I'll be picking that up on Thursday night. Really looking forward to that. But are there other practical steps that we, the public, can take right now that could have a helpful impact over the next few weeks? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of restaurants out there that offer gift cards uh, for sale online. Unfortunately, Campanillo and Popina do not. Uh, I wish we, now I wish we did, but we, we don't, but that's a simple, that's a very simple one. You know, uh, any sort of cash coming into the, into the coffers for any restaurant right now would be a good thing. And then just, you know, just when, you know, words of support and words of, 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 you know, I've been getting a lot of our customers have been reaching out to me via our social media and telling us, you know, they will be there the day we reopen uh, and I think that that's what's going to happen. I, I think that there's going to be a lot of people who have who've gone a little stir crazy from being isolated in their own houses. And we're going to see weeks and weeks of people out and about going to all the restaurants that they possibly can. You know, Let's look forward to those better days. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> well, listen, Robert, I won't take more of your time, but thanks so much for uh, coming on again, for sharing your thoughts during what is a really awful time. And, and I look forward to seeing you again on the other side of it pleasure was mine it was great chatting with you thanks again robert for taking the call and for giving us your thoughts during this really really tough time i love your suggestion that people reach out with some kind words it may seem like a small thing but it sounds like it's having a big impact and i would encourage people to let the restaurants that you know and love Uh, know that you're thinking about them let them know that you're going to be coming back when they are able to open up and to serve us all again okay 
on to our next interview now. This is the coffee-focused portion of the show. I met uh, several months back, as I say, at Matchstick Coffee in Chinatown in Vancouver for a great talk with Diana and Rory. They are the team behind Scavenger Coffee, which is this great bicycle-powered coffee cart that roams Vancouver serving coffee or will again soon. Again, like Campagnolo, like so many other food service businesses, Scavenger Coffee is on hold at the moment. But I am definitely looking forward to their return when this COVID is behind us. So, Scavenger Coffee, Diana and Rory have a great story about why they got into this business, about how they got into this business, and about some of the very definite challenges they faced. They actually built this coffee cart from the ground up, from the bicycle up, and that was one of the challenges. You'll hear them talking about having to learn about welding and epoxy pours and how YouTube helped them out with, uh, with a lot of educational resources. But another one of the challenges that they talk about, and it's what I want to highlight on uh, several episodes of Chef Demoni, is the regulatory challenges that businesses face. And I really just want to highlight this because I think it's something that most members of the general public don't really know much about. Just how challenging it can be, particularly for small business, to comply with the regulatory requirements. So we get into that as well. And we also just have a great talk about coffee, about coffee making, about coffee culture. You're going to hear that, not surprisingly, being a bicycle-powered business, Scavenger Coffee attracts a lot of the cyclist crowd. And so you can just imagine people pulling up on their bikes to a bicycle-powered coffee cart and enjoying some community around that. Community is another very, very important thing for Rory and Diana. It was a real pleasure to hear that from them. That's really what's important to them. And the way they've chosen to contribute to community and to build community is by doing it through coffee. So without further ado, let's get to Matchstick in Chinatown in Vancouver. Here's my talk with the team behind Scavenger Coffee. Okay, so here at Matchstick in Chinatown with Diana and with Rory, thank you very much for joining me, first of all. Thanks for having us. <laughs> of course, of course. I really want to, I've got a whole bunch of questions. We were just talking before we started recording on sort of the regulation side and some of the challenges in operating a food business on that side. But let's start with what I think is a really cool start, and that's the physical item that you bring and that you operate. Tell us about the cart that you use to serve your coffee. So the the whole cart idea started around like bike-based businesses and Dan and I had quit our jobs and gone bike touring around Europe for six months and decided to do some sort of bike-based business and we both love bikes and coffee and so we decided to do a bike trailer coffee cart. Did you build it? Yes. <laughs> All built by us from scratch, mostly in our basement of our house in Strathcona here in Vancouver. Fantastic. And do you have building experience? How did that process go? Um, we, no, not very much building experience. Well, you do now, but did we you before? Now. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> we have good friends and family members that gave advice. We have good research skills. Uh, yeah. A L- lot, lot of, of YouTube. A lot of YouTube. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And for, for the listeners, of course, this is an audio production. Describe what it looks like. Like, when I walk up and see your cart, what am I looking at? 
Uh, so I'll describe the materials because I feel like that gives kind of the viscerality of the cart. Um, the chassis, which is the main structure on which the cart sits and that rides on the wheels, is aluminum that we scavenged from our local metal scrapyard, uh, which <laughs> we were really fortunate. And uh, it's great and structural. And it's a cedar uh, box. Uh, we chose cedar because it uh, will stand the elements and it's beautiful and very workable. Right, and it smells like the West Coast. It smells great. <laughs> uh, we waxed the cedar with uh, beeswax, linseed oil, coating, so it's all natural. The, it's, it also uses like brass and copper elements, like the fenders are like brass sheet and like it's got like copper corner brackets. Beautiful. Like it that. sounds, uh, is steampunk, can we say that? Would, that? would that describe the aesthetic of it? Steampunk's been floated around. Okay. <laughs> and, and you don't object to it? I don't object. <laughs> okay. We were going for like, like origin of espresso culture. Uh, aesthetic. So um, the old machines were like upright boiler, like a lot of brass and copper, and yeah, very steampunk. Wonderful. Well, t- Sorry, go ahead. One Ron. thing, I guess, is we were trying to minimize the use of plastic anywhere on the cart or on the machine. So the uh, machine, especially, which is called Fantastico and was built for us by uh, Renegade Rebuilds, and Nico is the, the guy who does these custom creations. He stripped the machine down to its parts and rebuilt it using brass and copper and just removing all the kind of plastic parts he could and, and rebuilding it. And so Dinah actually sent him over some concepts, like images, kind of steampunk-esque, and he built it from there. And we didn't actually see it till it was finished and got that, and then we built the whole cart around it to match it using the copper and the brass accents. So Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. How is it powered? How is it fired? How do, you, how do you make it hot? So it's a hybrid machine. It runs off propane and electricity. And so when we're outside, it's propane. And when it's indoors, we can plug into any like 110 volts outlet. Fantastic. So he actually, that was another conversion he did for us, Nico, uh, because it's originally from Italy. So it was um, like a two, 220 or 240 volts right, thing. Right. So now it works with any outlet. Okay, terrific. Yeah. And maybe walk us through the uh, the operation that you have. You've mentioned outdoors. You've mentioned indoors. It's uh, bike powered, so obviously portable. Uh, where do you tend to serve coffee? So during the week, I mean, we're quite new and we're still moving around a lot, trying to find our our spots. But during the week, right now we're in Railtown, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and we're at the High Bouldering Gym on Wednesday mornings. And then weekends, we leave kind of open to whatever events are going on. Um, so we've been doing some events at the Vancouver Art Gallery Plaza, downtown in uh, Cole Harbor, and yeah, all, all over. So, all over the place. Yeah. And Diana, would you do private events? Would, would you have you, can you, if somebody wanted to, was throwing a uh, big birthday party in their backyard, would you show up and, and sell coffee? Yeah, for sure. We <laughs> definitely would. We've done a couple. We did one with a local clothing company. That was super cool, just serving to their employees for their like morning coffee meeting. It was really fun. And yeah, that's definitely what our cart is more built for and what it excels at because we are limited by our size for, and like seating space, or lack thereof, for being like kind of a like set in place coffee shop. But for doing events, that's what we're made for. Terrific. What about beans? Where are you guys sourcing your beans and how does all of that work? 
Uh, so I had a lot of fun checking out all the roasters in Vancouver, which we are lucky to be rich in. And I got great response going around to the different spots and telling them that I was starting a coffee shop. And they were great at accommodating me and having delightful coffees for me to taste. And eventually we settled on, right now we're uh, serving agro roasters beans. Uh, they're super close to us and they have a really great Ethiopian natural process that we've been serving on our cart, which is like extra fruity and fermented with the bean cherry on. So it's like got like lots of sweet notes and like, it's like really delicate and fruity in, in an espresso. What are the, what are the types of brew that you do is it all for the coffee is it all espresso based drinks and then what else do you offer uh, and I and I know from before we started recording that tea is on the menu but maybe walk us through all of the offering yeah so all of our coffee drinks are espresso based um, which seems kind of funny because you think of drip coffee as being a simpler thing but we just don't have space to carry multiple types of equipment so we have the espresso machine and so everything is based off of that, you know, Americanos or lattes, cappuccinos. But then we also wanted to carry tea. So Dinah found uh, a great tea supplier called East Van Tea Company, which is also close to us, which is important. And has she's really passionate about her teas. And so we carry, you know, black teas, green tea, chai, rooibos, and cream of Earl Grey, which is our absolute favorite and what we drink at home all the time. And then we also offer mochas and hot chocolates as well. So I feel like we have a decent menu for such a small little For such operation. a small operation, yeah. absolutely. Um, apart from the, and we're going to come back to this topic a little later when we talk about some of the regulatory challenges that small businesses face, but maybe walk us through how and where you store your cart and, mm -hmm. and why on a daily basis. So we store our cart in a commissary kitchen in East Vancouver, uh, luckily very close by to our house. We didn't realize when we moved into our current place that it happened to be very close to a lot of the commissary kitchens in Vancouver. And so, yeah, the coast, coast city of Vancouver and Coastal Health uh, require that any mobile business has to be attached to a commissary. And it was a little bit tricky for us because most food trucks can park on the street. We can't park ours outside. It would, the espresso machine is way too shiny and we get stolen in a second. So we had to find a place that could accommodate us uh, with parking it inside, which no one wanted to do because it takes that valuable space that they could be renting out for a lot of money. Sure. Uh, sure. So even though it might be small by comparison to a food truck and small in an outside mm -hmm. setting, obviously when you're paying by the square foot or square inch to store it inside, it becomes an issue. Yeah. So we looked at some of the bigger commissaries and... It just wasn't a good fit for us because they really have their spaces maximized for, you know, uh, tables and, and high, yeah. So we managed to find, uh, after looking at, I don't know, dozens of places and touring uh, well over 10 of them and uh, having to move around a few times for space reasons and access reasons, we found a, a little place that we share with uh, four, I think four other businesses. And we have our little bay that we... We wheel our cart into and store it, and um, some space for dry storage and fridge storage and freezer storage. And and what about the water? How do you how do you um, how and and wh how and where do you get your water? And same question, why? So we fill we have a, a 36 liter water tank on the cart, which is the uh, required size tank from Coastal Health. Uh, they're very specific on that, and we fill it at the commissary kitchen. 
And then we have a, a 45 liter wastewater tank, which is also specified by them, which is a big point of contention actually for us in terms of the regulation side because we tried to explain to them that we're not a food truck that uses our water for washing dishes. We sell our water. Right. So at the end of the right. day, we might end up with like two liters of, of wastewater. We don't but, need 45 liters. But you're, but you're peddling around a 45-liter tank. Yeah. So we, we eventually ended up with a solution of a, a bladder, like a flexible tank, and they were okay with that because we literally don't have space for a 45-liter rigid tank on the cart. Of course. So It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> It's a real bitch to clean. <laughs> I love it. That's why I, both, I both love the comment and I'm making a mental note that I have to uh, put the explicit rating on iTunes for this episode. <laughs> All good. So before we delve back into that and maybe some other challenges with the regulation side, and I've just noticed that Matchstick is now providing a background track for us. Diana, tell us how you came to be in the coffee industry and whether you had any other prior stops in the food service hospitality industry before scavenger i come from an art background so my interest in coffee comes from art culture like the using the coffee shops as a gallery space and as a meeting space and as a drawing space i like to meet friends to draw in coffee shops tend to have great seating, like window seating and lighting. In terms of food background, I have a limited food background. I was, I did some food deliveries on bicycle uh, as uh, one of my previous jobs, or several of my previous jobs, and I also worked at a local Vancouver cafe from which I was let go. Emotionally tumultuous time of my life uh, for being too inefficient as a barista. And does that inform, I think it would, but please tell us, I think that would inform your current business in a good way because what I take from that was that you actually wanted to interact with the customers and exchange stories and hear how they're doing. Or am, am I right on that? We, we certainly, though we try to be efficient, we don't prioritize that. <laughs> That's part of our company culture. It's more, more about like community and interaction. Do you have any particular stories of interactions that you've had because of the mobility of the cart that you wouldn't have had otherwise, that you just wouldn't have working in a standard coffee shop like the one we're in now? I really like that the cart attracts cyclists and cycling enthusiasts. People with, people with interesting bike culture come by and, uh, and they, we, we bond on the cart. We have a, an 80s mountain bike uh, that pulls the cart, which is a beautiful steel frame vintage Kuwahara, like Japanese bike. And so that tends to, to attract kind of like the dad crowd, I would say. Uh, people who like who rode these kind of bikes when they were As kids. kids. Yeah, we actually bought it from a guy in Coquitlam who was a collector, and he came into it because he, he's in his words, his dad never let him have one when he was a child, and so now as an adult, he collects them and rebuilds them and sells them on Craigslist. Fantastic. Uh, so yeah, like definitely get get a diverse crew that that are attracted to like the bike component of the cart. Love it. And Rory, tell us where did you start out in food or hospitality or coffee, any of those things prior to Scavenger? Yeah, so my first coffee job was at Tim Hortons on the Sunshine Coast. It was short-lived. And then after that, in university, I worked at a, um, a white tablecloth-type restaurant in Town and got some exposure to, to that kind of side of the, the food industry and the kind of customer 
service and experience that you need at that level. But after that, you know, I went into uh, like marketing and, and working at a tech companies and stuff. So this this coffee, scavenger coffee, is is my first foray back into the food business again since then. Was it more or at least in large part because of the bike trip in Europe that inspired you guys to start this as a business? So I worked at a really great company here in Vancouver called Ship Delivery, doing cargo deliveries on electric cargo bicycles. And they started out small and from like a couple of like SFU students that started it. And I was really, felt really empowered working for them and felt really inspired by how much you could do on an electrically assisted cargo tricycle. And... And uh, yeah, I always felt that there was tons of potential. You could do anything with a bike like that, depending on how you outfitted it. That was my inspiration. Yeah, uh, I, would, I would agree with that. Like we I agree. Also, I mean, I, I started a, a little side business in the summer in university with a friend. And so even when I went back to working for other people, I always had that in the back of my mind that it is possible to make money doing something yourself. And so it was just kind of the timing of, yeah, we did this bike trip and... And Dana had this inspiration from Shift Deliveries as well, and so we said, let's let's make a business around bikes and and coffee and bikes. Just they're, they've been a good fit for decades. So and make it happen. I love it. Yeah. I can say there are a bunch of lawyers sitting in offices right now who uh, would give their eye teeth or something like it to run a business like this. That although it has undoubtedly has challenges, sounds super free and unstructured in its way. Do you guys... That's have... what we thought when we started saying Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and how is the reality measured up? Have you, do you have any regrets? Or do you yearn for the marketing world at all? On the rainy days, the dry office sounds pretty good. But sure. No, I mean, it took us a lot longer. Like, way longer than we ever thought it would take to get it off the ground. I think... I don't. We never really had a specific launch date in mind, but... Certainly, I think we were thinking, oh, a few months, we'll have it built and licensed and ready to go. It took us six months just to get our drawings approved before we could start building. Start building it. Okay, and this is the perfect segue into the regulatory challenge side of things. So who had to approve your drawings? And tell us, maybe just walk us through that whole process from concept to first day. Yeah, so Vancouver Coastal Health was the very first people we had to talk to. So we went to their website and got as much information as we could and all the guides and everything. And, and we, you know, prepared everything we could. Dana made some great uh, drawings to scale of, you know, top-down view, side view. <laughs> Not quite to scale. And, and then we submitted it and then promptly got told that we were doing everything wrong. And it would never work that way. And and then it was just a lot of back and forth with what, them. What were the initial concerns? Was it on, like, your boiler isn't going to work? Or was it, this is too big for a cart? Or what were they yeah, concerned so, about? I mean, one of them was the size of the water tank. We, we actually based our design off of a, a company called Velopresso, which makes coffee bikes in Great Britain. And they use a 25-liter water tank, 25-liter size. And so we said, great, it works for them. They ship bikes all over the world, 25-liter and then found out Vancouver has a somewhat arbitrary 36-liter minimum requirement. Minimum, yeah. And did, did they explain why? I don't understand the basis of a minimum requirement. We asked why a lot and just thought, <laughs> called, it's, that's the rules. That's the rule. Yeah. <laughs> it says so right here. Exactly. 
uh, I feel like a large problem with the coastal health regulation system is that like when we asked why, like why are these rules this way, can't we do it a different way, it was explained to us that that's the province's kind of legislation area. One thing that I think is unfortunate is that the people we were dealing with are all highly educated people working with coastal health, and yet they didn't seem to have any leeway themselves to make judgment calls. So the fact that we're a coffee business, not a food business, we sell our water, it's obviously ridiculous that we need a 45-liter wastewater tank, but they literally could not approve our, our plans unless we showed that we did. Never mind that they, like, I think that they should be able to make the judgment call and be trusted to sign it off and not get a slap on the wrist later. Right, so. right. Did, did you? Ex- I'm sure you experienced frustration. Did you perceive any frustration from their side at all? And what I'm imagining is that somebody there might have thought, man, I wish I could tell you you can have a three-liter wastewater tank, but I can't. Or maybe not. No, I, no, I didn't sense no? that, okay. no. Actually, yeah. okay. I wish we had received some emotion from the person we, we were speaking with. Yeah, unfortunately, we didn't seem, the person we were dealing with didn't seem to be enthused about our idea. So it did, did feel a bit like a uphill struggle. And so the back and forth continued for a while. This is with Vancouver Coastal Health. Ultimately, you got there, the flexible disposal tank. What are, there, what are the things, if any, did you have to change? We had to have three sinks. Uh, sinks had to be a minimum size, about 25 centimeters by 25 centimeters by 15 centimeters deep, uh, which is the minimum size. Never mind that our our milk pitcher is the largest thing that we wash on the cart because we have large commercial triple sinks back at the kitchen that we do we do all our dishes so that was one that we tried to push back on again and just could not get them to budge an inch no luck and so you actually have three sinks Mm -hmm. on physically on a cart that you bicycle around yes and coastal help and then from whom else did you have to get permits or did you From what other agencies, or did you have to get like a business license from the city? Yeah, so Coastal Health, and then so six months to get, uh, after many revisions, we got sign off to to build. Uh, And then we spent the next, uh, pretty much the whole summer building the carts, which also took longer than expected because we chose to do things in the most complicated ways possible and had to teach ourselves lots of new skills like welding and bio welder and learn how to do epoxy pours and all sorts of things and when we finished finally finished building we had to have an inspection from coastal health uh, in a commissary kitchen okay and then with that inspection we could go to the city and get our business license which we thought would be easy which took another four months maybe longer wow and so the reason for that was that we just kept running into issues at the commissaries of it's hard to describe but like they didn't have quite the right type of license or permit to allow us to come in as another person and I don't even yeah we we must have been to city hall about six times and just wasting meetings. half a day each time sitting there waiting to talk waiting to somebody to talk to someone and so it took us until I mean we were paying rent from May, and we didn't start operating until August, like third week of August. And then finally, after the business license, we got our roaming permit, which also comes from the city. And that so, was actually sorry, the which, most painless. The roaming, so okay. this is like for doing street sales. Right, okay. And that was 
actually the most painless one because it was just an online thing where you showed them proof of the various licenses and commercial insurance and all these things, and then they approved it, I think, within 24 hours. Okay. So I was expecting another month, and then it came in the next day, and came I was in pretty and happy And away you went. Yeah. And so does the roaming permit, does, is that what gives you license to, to park in, in particular areas? Is that how that works? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because they, it's valid for the entire city of Vancouver, but then they have quite a few restrictions. Okay. That when you start working through them all, you realize that there's not that many places you can go. So the downtown is a blackout zone. Uh, and so west of Maine and north of the False Creek. And then you can't be parked in a park or a beach because those are park sports, right. which is a separate, <laughs> separate jurisdiction. jurisdiction. Yeah. Right. You it, can't be parked on a street bordering a park or a beach. You can't be parked next to a school. You can't be parked within 100 meters of an existing cafe. There's a couple more I'm not thinking of. Well, we, because we're a bicycle, we can't park on the street like a food truck. We can't park in a parking spot. Like, we can't pay the meter. Oh, We're not allowed to be parked on the street to, to because we don't have a, like a, a, a license vehicle. plate. But a, we can't register a motor vehicle because we're a bicycle. Right. And we can't park on the sidewalk unless the sidewalk is wide enough to still allow 1.2 meters of space. Okay. So, Are there any sidewalks yeah, wide enough? There's a few. Like, so. <laughs> that's, that's what our life is now, is finding odd spots in what could be good foot traffic areas that have enough of an oddly shaped sidewalk for us to fit. Right. So. Are, are, is Scavenger Coffee on the leading edge of non-food truck mobile businesses? And I, and I guess what I'm getting at is, are you running... It seems to me that if you're, a, if you're an early adopter of this business model, you'd have some good months or years, hopefully, before the space gets too crowded. Or is it crowded with other people trying to occupy similar spaces? There are a few of us. <laughs> so the first commissary we ended up in that we didn't and that didn't end up working out um, but we had a great time there because <laughs> our leaseholder is super cool Johnny Pops he sells popsicles and he started out on a bicycle his popsicles are delicious and he's been running for five years and now he has like a little truck and a few little carts that he sends out on the town and he spends the off season like like it using his makerspace workshop to like run his other kind of creative business so he was really inspirational to us so that was cool starting out in his space there's also a few other businesses around that started off as bicycles like Ernest Ice Cream who we also looked at sharing space in their commissary but it didn't work out for various logistical reasons. There's one other coffee bike that launched just before us, actually, although when we submitted our paperwork, we were the only one in the running. With the person we share our commissary space with now, Ream Coast Coffee, uh, who's been really great. Kelly, the owner, has been really helpful to us in like, guiding us through the re- registrations, and he started off on a bicycle as well, doing nitro cold brew. So not, he wasn't processing milk, so it was a different kind of a level of legislation that applied to him but but he started out on a bicycle pedaling around Vancouver so uh, one thing that just strikes me as Dan is talking about that is a lot of those people have actually moved from bicycle to trailer or truck and for example Johnny Johnny Pops he actually had to move away from a bicycle because he's six foot six six foot seven and his first employee was five foot tall and she literally couldn't ride his bicycle. So he realized it was a bit of a problem going forward, and now he he actually doesn't bother doing street sales anymore, as popsicles just wasn't enough of a, a daily thing, and just moved towards events and has carts. 
And yeah, Kelly of Green Coast Coffee now has a, a larger trailer that he can do music festivals and, and events with. So, and Ernest Ice Cream, after one year, they were doing well enough from the bike that they, they got a brick and mortar location. Now they have four or five, I think. So, yeah, there's not too many people who stick with the bike. We're the same height. Uh, we have the same length of legs anyway. So we can share our bicycle really easily. It's really one handy. Of the, one of those things that so you, you look for in a business partner. think of in a business, <laughs> important to a business plan. That's awesome. Do you have any thoughts on what, what I'm sure you do, uh, on what you would change about the application or permitting process if you could wave a wand or, yeah, let's say if you could wave a wand, what would you change about it? We have many thoughts. One one main driving factor in starting this business was we were inspired that a push cart style bicycle based business was an accessible style of business and bicycles by nature are an accessible form of transportation and really empowering tool for people and we felt that starting a small scale business of this nature would should be really empowering to people of all kind of like social classes and uh, levels of education and means and we found through the process that that was not the case i guess the one thing that i felt would have helped a lot was if someone from the city or from coastal health was maybe a bit more of a, a champion for us that there's maybe someone you talk to and you, you send your, your your plans through your designs that they get enthused about it and they want to help find a way that it works. Like, we were actually told, why don't you just bring a carafe of drip coffee that you made beforehand and just dispense it for people? Because then it's a different license. That's right. a lot easier to get. Right. And we said, no, like, that's, that's not that's our idea. That's not the dream. not what we want to do. Yeah, and they just didn't seem to get that. So, some, so maybe, I mean, I don't know how many applications they get, if they're just inundated and over, like, understaffed, but we just didn't really feel like there was much support. So a, right. a little bit of hand-holding would be nice. Oh, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, and, and for something that's a cool addition to the community, it would make sense, I think, uh, to have somebody champion it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Just a couple more thoughts. Where, where both uh, digitally and physically can people find you? So we're called Scavenger Coffee, and you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Scavenger Coffee and scavengercoffee.com. Okay. And physically, we are on Twitter. Mostly used just to retweet our location day to day. And so at the moment, uh, we are at 601 Alexander in front of the Aritzia head office on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday mornings. In front of the High Bouldering Gym on Industrial Wednesday mornings. And weekends are all over the place. Here, there, and everywhere. Here, there, and everywhere, yeah. Terrific. Well, listen, Rory and Diana, thank you very much for taking the time and, and for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's quite late on Thursday evening as I record this, but I've got to say that listening to my talk again with Diana and with Rory has me craving coffee, so I may just go put the kettle on. In any case, Rory and Diana, thanks so much again for joining me. I really enjoyed our talk, and I am definitely looking forward to the time that Scavenger is back on the streets of Vancouver, and I'll look forward to seeing you then for a coffee. Thank you as well for joining me here for the Cheftimony podcast. It really means a lot to me that you choose to spend some time with me here on the show. I will be back with another episode next week. I haven't quite decided yet whether that is going to, again, focus a little bit on COVID or perhaps be a more traditional Cheftimony episode. In any event, 
We'll see what the week brings, and I look forward to speaking with you again next Friday. I'm going to make the request that I do virtually every week. If you have a moment, please leave a star rating for Cheftimony. If you're enjoying the show, you can do that on Apple Podcasts and the other directories. If you've got a little more time, please leave a written review for the show. Doing either or both of those things really does help other people to discover Cheftimony. All right, that is going to do it for this week. I'm Graham McLennan. And I'll see you next Friday, right here on Chef Tomorrow.